podcast one production. Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years, reporting on all the Aussie stars, from Hoax to the Hemsworths, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood. Anthony LaPaglia is a veteran of Hollywood. He was originally from Adelaide and moved to the States in his 20s, which was during the 1980s. Now, at that time, being an Aussie wasn't exactly a good thing in Hollywood, as you'll hear later in my interview with him. In fact, it was probably more of a curse than the blessing it's considered today for all the Aussies that brag about their accent and where they're from. He's made the most of every opportunity before him. He won a Tony for his role in the Broadway play A View from the Bridge, an Emmy for his guest role in Frasier, and a Golden Globe for Best Actor in a TV Series Drama for Without a Trace. I've been friends with Anthony for oh, close to 30 years, and we caught up at my house in Venice, California recently. His latest project and first horror movie, Annabelle Creation, was a big box office hit both in America and Australia. But it's how he got to this point in time, as well as the roles he said no to, that will give you a very different perspective of what it's like to be an Aussie in Hollywood. I guess I I have to apologise because I remember being the person that outed you as an Australian back then. Um, And I just found the story recently and emailed it to you. I don't know if you saw it. No, I saw it, yeah. (laughs) I saw it. What was it like back then when you really sort of had to embrace this identity that was completely not Australian. Well, when I when I arrived here, I literally never met an Australian actor here or in New York. The only one I met was Deborah Lee Finesse, but I'm not sure at what period of time. I'd already been here for a while. You know, when I used to go to auditions, you know, I'd go in with uh, an Australian accent. And uh, I'd worked really hard at developing an American accent. But at the time, Paul Hogan was like, you know, doing Put a Shrimp on the Barbie. So every audition was 20 minutes of him and how much they loved that commercial. And then we go into the audition and, you know, they'd say, oh, great, but I can hear your accent still. And I used to think, no, it's bullshit. But it happened a few too many times. And then I just decided I'm going to lie. So I went into an audition. They said, where are you from? I said, Brooklyn. They went, great. I auditioned and got the part. From that point on, I was—I didn't bother with the you know, Australian thing, and I really kind of uh, assimilated into American culture and American life because I felt like felt like Americans, especially back then, were very happy for your success. Whereas in Australia, you know, to some degree, there would be they would embrace it for a bit, then if they felt it was too much. That they would start chopping down the poppies, yeah. you know, it's the and tall poppy syndrome. Exactly. Basically, when I came, there was no Aussie network, there was no Aussie support, and because it was just really clear that if you wanted to succeed here, there were very few roles for Australians at all. I came here, I didn't know anyone, you know. I basically landed with about four hundred bucks in my, in my, you know, Dunlop volleys, and just hit it from there. So sometimes when I hear actors talk about like you know how tough it was in the beginning, I can't ever say that it wasn't tough. It was it was I guess in retrospect, but it didn't feel tough. It felt like this is what I wanted to do, and there were certain things I'd have to do to achieve it, and or also it was a different period of time too. Not only were there no social media, there was no fucking cell phones. 
you know, this was payphone era. We're talking 81, 82. I never felt like it was a hardship. It was just an adventure. I mean, how I got in contact with people was payphone. My agents, it, it took me days to get them sometimes <laughs> to coordinate it, you know? In fact, outside one of the apartments where I lived, there was a payphone and it had a number on it. And I would get on the phone with someone and I'd say, well, call me back at 9.30. And I'd go to the payphone and wait for the phone to ring. <laughs> but that's really what you did. So, that, you know, there was, no, there was no Aussie support system. There was no Aussies in Hollywood. There was none of that stuff. Yeah. Let's go, let's go back to the start because it's still such an incredibly unlikely story that somebody like you growing up in Adelaide could end up, you know, with the career that you've had. With no contacts, no drama school, no nothing. No. I think if I go back to when I was a kid, I just kind of knew. It wasn't acting. I never thought about being an actor at all. I wanted to become a professional soccer player. And at 15, or 15, just before 16, I got signed to a, a, a contract with um, Adelaide City. You were still there. But, you know, I was young, so I was basically on the bench a lot and learning. And as I got older, I got opportunities and, you know, cut a long story short, it turned out in the end, I wasn't as good as I needed to be to go to the next level and play in Europe at a higher level. That's what I wanted. I want to go play in Italy. That must have been a devastating thing to realise at that point. Technically, I was good enough. Mentally, I just wasn't. Like, I could not. I was a goalkeeper and I had trouble dealing with the pressure sometimes. In some way, performances were very erratic. <laughs> and it used to drive my coaches crazy because in training, I was like world beater. In games, something just happened where I just could not adjust. So I just got to a point where I went, well, this is not going to be your path. You then put yourself into a profession where it's all about performance, literally. Like I know. The irony has not been lost on me. <laughs> I had not developed a brain that had a script of where I was supposed to go. And the great players have that. I just never had it. You know, after that was over, it was a bit, well, what the hell do I do now? You know, and I just kind of, I don't know, dicked around. And, but there was a real thing when I got to New York, as opposed to L.A. New York was one of those places when I got there, I just suddenly felt comfortable in my own skin. Like I never had before. Not in Adelaide, certainly not in the times I'd been in L.A., not in Chicago, but New York had this thing where... I don't know, I just fit. There's also no thoughts of like really having a career. I really just modelled through it. But you had uh, many years then before it really became a nine sustainable nine years. profession, right? Nine years. Nine what years were you doing during those nine years when you couldn't pay the rent or bartender picking up the odd job in a in a you know an episodic? What yeah, you had some great episodics. No, I did some shit. They were total shit. Oh my god, Twilight Zone, Punk Number One. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I mean. Episode of Magnum PI, Trapper John, MD. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these were like tiny bit parts, but they paid. You're there all that time. You're juggling jobs. You're getting occasional uh -huh. things to encourage you to continue. But and most people, not. most people would quit and go home. Yes, they would. But every person I know that became successful and stuck around had a similar story. This is what makes the difference. People think you just get off the plane, you get a job, and everything. That's everyone... what Hollywood sells. Hollywood sells the overnight success and yes they exist but I don't know how many 
Like, if I think back over the last 30 years, there were so many breakout stars. that You've seen it. You've been doing this for years. Yeah. How many breakout stars of the year are actually even working still? The thing about doing the hard yards is that you build up your tolerance for rejection. After a certain amount of time, you develop a, you know, a very thick skin. Taking it personally, that's the thing that can destroy you. Like, I'm not, well, this, I'm not quite the, done. The focus of this is to ask about Australians and what it is, if there is anything inherently in Australians that account for this disproportionate number of them well, surviving I mean, there's two, and There's two things going driving. on. The two, the, the, I think the, the major motiv motivating factor is the industry at home, is that it's quite small. And there's a level you can get to and you can't get past it. So if you really want to, like follow through and have uh, more opportunities and bigger career, you have to leave in the end. Um, business is not big enough to support a lot of stuff. Back in the day, though, Australian actors, they didn't like the American industry very much. They actually thought it was a step down from what they were doing back home. And that's a topic of conversation you could have if you wanted to, but I didn't feel that way. Here's what the problem is with this whole Australian thing, though, is, is that you talk about, like, the half-dozen crack it here. How many hundreds are not? Many. They're waiting table. They're all doing it hard. There's a few that have... Normally ones that have come out with a film. That helps. If you come out cold, it's tougher than you think. Mm. And if you've got this idea that you'll give it a try for six months, you may as well stay home. Because it's going to take longer for almost everybody. That's what Rachel Griffiths told me... Um that she felt that there's a much more tremendous pressure on Australians once they get here and they just have to keep keep going until something happens because they can't face the idea of going back with their tail between their legs. I don't know, you're like They've a got much more but, see, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have a career there at all, so I never had that pressure. My entire career was built in the States. Yeah. So I didn't have to go back to that kind of judgment. So I, I know what she means, but I never had to deal with that. But that's legit. Mm. It's also, though... I think that people come over, I think that two things I noticed with the, 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 the more recent, you know, wave of Aussies is that they, they come over maybe with slightly, maybe the expectations are a bit unrealistic about exactly how the path will go. You've got to be pretty flexible. Second thing is, is that I've noticed that they don't really integrate a whole ton with Americans in particular. It's like they tend to stick together. So sometimes, and I, I understand why, but I was just never part of that. You know, to me, it always felt like you should integrate more. Get to know the country that you're in, get to know the business that you're in, and get to know the people that you're living with. But did you still feel like you could connect with your roots, or you didn't care? I didn't care. You know, I mean, your brother came over at some point, right? You had family here. Yeah. You know, Jonathan and I, you know, we're brothers, we're close. But we don't talk about, you know, uh, we don't really get into show business that much. Or it's not a topic that I really talk about at home, like ever. Um, or not one I like to talk about. Mm. But um, it just, you know, it's like sometimes like with the Aussie group, and it's going to sound like a criticism, but it isn't. It's just an observation. With the Aussie group, I feel like they remind me of my Italian relatives who came out from, you know, Sicily and, and Reggio Calabria 
and literally when you walked inside their door, they never left. They were in Adelaide, but inside the house, in the backyard, you had the bocce and you had all the Italian cooking and only Italian was spoken in the home. I could have been in Italy. It wouldn't have made any difference. They also didn't integrate, had no intention of integrating because it was safer for them not to. And I feel like you, while it's good to have connections with your country, it's also good to spread them, spread yourself out a little bit. I think there's this conception that Americans in the business are like all horrible and you know one-dimensional and all that stuff. And I just never found it to be that way. And also, like I, I'm not mentioning any names whatsoever, but I've seen people come out from Australia, get successful here pretty quickly, and adopt Hollywood faster than any American I ever saw adopt Hollywood. They had the entourage, they had everything within 10 minutes. And uh, <laughs> they'd have more of an entourage than Bob De Niro, you know? So, and he didn't have really a big one at all. <laughs> and so I think they bought into the, not just the acting part of it, but the success part of it and what it was supposed to represent. So suddenly, you know, an intimate dinner at their house turned into 40 people, most of which were in the business. Not that intimate a dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, you, you kind of, you know, you can be critical of the American system or American films or American television. My question is always then, why are you here? Don't shit where you eat. You're getting, I've had a few arguments once in a while with Aussies who get a bit highbrow about how much better than they are than the American system. And I always go, you know, there's QF11 every night. <laughs> it leaves LAX, you can go. And go back to neighbors and then make 4,000 bucks a week on neighbors. What are you making right now? Significantly more. So I really take umbrage at people who shit on yeah. the opportunity that they've gotten. And I'm telling you right now, they do. It always ticks me off. And so my relationship with like the Australian part of the business here is a bit more tenuous, I think. That's because I never really, you know, like yeah. I didn't build my career there. I built it here. But Australia has. But Australia, you were able to use your career here to go back and do some well, fantastic well, work in well, Australia. Well, weirdly, is that, and I'm something I was never expecting, like Australia, you know, they were quick to claim me and adopt <laughs> me into the. Which I always found a bit odd, but they did. And to be honest, I love working there. Like all the things I like about acting. All the things I like about the business kind of exist now, a bit more there. But again, it's a function of money. Australians have to be more creative with less, which is why some of their, you know, they have to overachieve. And so you see some movies that have no budget, but they're amazing because you're just taught to do more with less. Here, you can wait five hours for somebody to light the trees in the background of the scene. <laughs> Seems unnecessary to me. But you don't have to, in, in Australia, they can't afford to do that. So it forces creativity to happen. And I like that part of it. You know, mm. I like how maverick a lot of it still is. I think like, over time, I gained a much greater appreciation for Australia in general. You know, when I left, I was just so anxious to get out of Adelaide, basically. Can't yeah. imagine why. <laughs> oh, I don't want to rag on Adelaide too much. Sorry. It, just was like, it was just like, look, Adelaide works for some people, it doesn't work for others, it just didn't really work for me. But, and it was not just based on Adelaide, it was also based on my upbringing as well. A lot of factors in there, right? So I'm not blaming a town in particular, but I will say that boredom does foster creativity. 
<laughs> and crime, right? And crime, yeah. <laughs> I hear you guys were quite the little run around towns when you were young. My brother and I, oh yeah, we used to, no, Michael and I, Jonathan wasn't born yet, but Michael and I used to like, you know, we'd be gone at like six in the morning and not come back to like five for dinner. But nobody ever said like, what did you do today? Or we grew up in the era of like, we don't care how you feel. We don't care what you did. Just show up when you're supposed to. You had a, the kind of childhood also that, like, it could have, you could have gone down a different road from that boredom, right? Oh, Christ. You could, could have, have ended up it. not being in Hollywood. You could have ended up being in jail, right? The chances of actually me being in Hollywood were very, very remote, but for a string of fortunate circumstances. You know, I don't take a whole ton of credit for it. Other than this, I was willing to take the chance. Well, that's a big factor. Well, it's a huge factor. You got on a plane with $400 to live in New York? Yeah. <laughs> zero idea. Didn't know anyone And didn't know anyone. No. And it didn't occur to me how kind of risky that might be or... How long did the money last? Not long. Not long. But I got a job pretty quickly. Any job that would pay me under the table because I wasn't legal to work at the time, so... But um, there were plenty of places that you could work where they were happy to do cash under the table, so... Like, sometimes people get get your face about the money part of it. And I will always say, yeah, but I took a huge chance. I decided to embark on something that had absolutely no guarantee of success at all. It's not, if I do six years of university, I could probably expect some kind of employment. I could do six years of acting school and not have any expectation yeah. of any employment. So if you're willing to hang out the shingle that long, whatever you make for the rest of your life, you earned it. Yeah. Because... That's what people get mad about. Why do they get mad? Because they didn't take the chance. Anthony's best known around the world for his role on the hit crime procedural show Without a Trace. Most people would call that his big break, but as you'll hear shortly, Anthony's happy to dispute that claim because he wasn't always convinced of the show's potential. And also, there's another role we could have come to know Anthony for that was bigger than all of them, Tony Soprano in The Sopranos. Anthony explains the entire story and why he's happy he didn't land the role in the game-changing HBO show. That's next on Aussies in Hollywood. You said earlier when I said that Without a Trace was a big break for you that you'd had bigger breaks. Yeah, yeah. You didn't feel like a seven-year run in a hit series and a Golden Globe? I didn't know that it was going to be a seven-year run. You know, I signed a pilot deal. yeah. I saw the pilot and I just thought, well, that's never going. And, <laughs> Why did you uh, think that was never going? I don't know. I just thought it was an okay show. It surprised me that it like, took off. That every year it kept getting stronger. But it kept surprising me more and more. But it certainly was to me, it wasn't the biggest break I ever had. Television has an enormous power. I don't care what movie you do. More people will watch a TV show that's popular in one night than will ever see all your movies. That's the truth. CBS next Tuesday. Is this missing person a victim? He's not getting far without that. Or out for revenge. Plan this stupid. Must have gone wrong once or twice. Get ready for a twist on the case. Well, you don't need legs to pull a trigger. And off the clock. We're not supposed to do this. We're at work. New without a trace. CBS next Tuesday. Didn't you tell me the night we were all at the Golden Globes when you won that Jack Nicholson said something to you? I don't remember. A lot of people said something. You said Jack Nicholson came up to your table after you won the Golden Globe and he said, hey, man, I TiVo you every week. But I had a few like that. Yeah? Like, 
I remember being really shocked when you realize the power of television when Ale I, I heard from a friend of Alexander McQueen, who was a designer, that it was his favorite show, <laughs> that he'd curl up in bed with ice cream and watch it. Um, <laughs> it turned out to be a guilty pleasure for a lot of people. But at the time, I mean, I'll be honest, for me, making the decision to do Without a Trace and do network television, we commit to it that way, was based on two things. My, my daughter was now a real thing. She was conceived, but not out yet. You know, I took a minute and I looked at the climate of what was going on. You know, in my case, I'd had three or four good shots that I thought were much bigger opportunities than what Al Tracer ever was. You know, winning a Tony for View from the Bridge, that was way bigger for me. Yeah. And there were other moments in my career that I remember much being more excited about. Without a Trace was a pragmatic decision. It was made on one, I wanted to be home, to be around for my kid. And secondly, when I looked at the, what was going on in the business, I had already had like three or four shots at carrying a studio movie and none of them had worked. So you go to movie jail for a while. I was definitely a movie jail. You know, I could do supporting stuff, no, no. But it was just away so much. And to be honest, the, the, the pay grade was terrible. You know, basically going back to scale in a big movie where they had money, but they spent it all on the one person. The one person that you weren't allowed to be for a while. <laughs> yes, exactly. When I looked at that, I just went, it's time for you to make a, a change. It's time for you to like stop thinking the way you're thinking and open your mind more to the possibilities of what's in front of you. Realistically, it turned out to be a great move, but it was pragmatic. Yeah. You know. I think I remember you calling it your pension plan or something at no, the time. No, no, no. I maybe, said, maybe I have, as a joke. I might have said that at the end. Yeah. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. At the, at the end, it definitely was, you know. Look, you were waiting to get to syndication because. This, that show, just, you know, on the flip side, that show brought me so many good things. I'm not unappreciative of it at all. Yeah. No, I, I would never suggest that. No, either. no, no, no. But, like, it, like it, calling it my big break, though, is like, it just. It never seemed like that to me. It just seemed like this accident that kept happening. Like I saw the pilot, I thought that's not going to go. And then after the first year, we were doing great in the numbers, and I still thought, well, maybe another year. I thought that every year for seven years, and it just kept going. You wow. Know? And uh, somehow it kind of stayed in the top ten for almost seven years. You know, I got a, you know I got to experience a lot of great things because of it. And the Golden Globe goes to Anthony LaPaglia without a trace. Now I can drink with Tim. This is great. This is so, this is so amazingly unexpected. Was it your decision after seven years to end it? I know. The popular myth out there is it was, and it wasn't. You know, people spin things the way they want to spin them. But the reality is, is that I had agreed to an eighth year. I, in fact, agreed to a pay cut to make the eighth year happen because it was becoming increasingly more expensive. I basically felt like... It was a great crew. We had like a really low attrition rate. Everybody loved working on it. And we had fun when we were there. It was very late in the season and we were all being told that the eighth season was happening. But it was put to me that if I didn't make certain adjustments, you know, in terms of pay scale, that that was not going to happen. And so I made all the adjustments that they needed and uh, they, they canned it anyway. They were always going to can it. I didn't oh. realise till later. You know, nobody ever told me. What? To this day. What do you mean? 
I found out when I was doing press for it in Spain, and a French journalist said, how do you feel about your show being? That's how I found out it was cancelled. Wow. Mm. After seven years? Yep. All the money around. you made them? Now, in the beginning, I think there was a bit of, you know, I was a bit stumped that, that I never got a call from anyone. And then after a while, I went, you know what? There's no real reason that they had to. I was an employee. They made money off it. I made money off it. It's for exchange. You know, if that's the way it went down, that's the way it went down. You know, I still think that there's better ways of doing it. You know, if you think that there's a loyalty built up, that was like almost, a, I think, almost a billion-dollar franchise worldwide. It doesn't mean anything. You know, you get some real eye-openers sometimes as to, like, your status. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get too carried away with yourself because <laughs> finding out that your show is cancelled from a foreign journalist is not the way you want to hear it, but that's what happens. Wow. You know, and then, the, you know, the mythology afterwards is that you know, I wasn't prepared to make concessions. I think they were talking about David Caruso because I definitely made them all. I just believed that they had decided for whatever reasons the show had become very top-heavy and even me conceding in the paycheck department couldn't save me. But it's much easier to shove it on the actor. Yeah, right. When it's not the reality. I would admit to it if I said, no, I want more money. I said, no, I'll have it to keep it on the air, but... Now, the other mythology I heard was that you met with David Chase to play Tony Soprano. Is that... That's not mythology. That's true. See, it's tough. This tricky subject to talk about. Okay, this is the reality of it. Um, the Sopranos was a script that was floating around for a while and nobody was doing anything with it. I met David Chase. Uh, this is a couple of years before it got made. I read it and I loved it and I was doing movies at the time and I was being pursued by CBS to do TV series. And I attached myself, you know, I was asked to attach myself to it so that, you know, it would have a chance of getting picked up somewhere. I actually sent it to CBS, said, I will do a TV series if you do this. And to their credit, they read it, and they went, this is the last moon vest, read it, and he said, it's great, but I just can't do it on network television. And he was right, he couldn't. And so a couple of years of me being attached to it resulted in sporadic meetings with David Chase or it was happening here or happening there. And in the meantime, I had committed to doing View from the Bridge on Broadway. And I did that, of course, at that exact time, HBO came up. But I'll tell you, this is how small the story really gets. HBO came in and said, yes, we're going to do it. So I was left with a choice, diving out of a play that I really wanted to do or to do this TV series that I really liked. But already was not seeing eye to eye with David Chase about who the character was. And I have to say, he was right. I was wrong. The guy that did it, Jimmy Gandolfini, was exactly the perfect actor for it. It wouldn't have been as good if I'd done it. It wouldn't have been the same, it would not have had the same life that it had. He was the perfect actor for the job. So I never regretted it. Really? All I was was attached to it. I've attached myself to lots of things that nothing has come to pass, especially in Australia. Yeah. I've been attached to, like, I don't know, 20 scripts that have never seen the light of day. It's just part... But you really had no regrets when, no. when you saw what it became. I mean, it really was no, the I mean, game changer of television. It was. And I, I really have... No, look, there might have been one moment when I was doing the play, actually, because it ran for a year. There was a moment where 
a bus went by and there was a poster of the Sopranos gun on the side. And I looked and I went, oh, that's going to be big. You see it on a bus, you know, it's like, so there was that, there was that moment, but it wasn't like, uh, I didn't feel like I fucked it up. I felt like I made a choice. And I felt like that it went the way it was supposed to go. I was just attached to it and it actually ended up not working out and the actor that was supposed to do it. So cut to at the same time, when we're auditioning for my wife in the play, B, for View from the Bridge, it got down to two actresses. It was down to Alison Janney and Edie Falco. You're kidding. No. And we couldn't choose between the two of them. We had, uh, Alison, if you're listening, I'm sorry. Um, we tossed a coin and Alison came up. That's how we, could, we couldn't choose. They were both so good. But you know what? It meant Edie was free to go and do The Sopranos. So it all, like, it's, like it all works out. But then it could have been you but and Edie. When I talk about this stuff, though, when I talk about this stuff, though, yeah. like it can get very misconstrued. And it's like, I'm sorry I ever said anything about it in the first place. It was yeah. a mistake to have ever said anything because it just sounds wrong somehow. No, I understand. But I go to great lengths to always, and I mean it from my heart because I knew yeah. J Jimmy. There's nobody more perfect. It wouldn't have been the same at all. And I don't, I never had any regrets. You knew him before that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I you guys were sort of around the same... We were in the same boat. Like, you know, he yeah. was doing movies, smaller roles in movies, and, you know, various degrees of success. And then suddenly he got this TV series that, like, changed everything. And you know what? It's not always for the, it's not always for the best. You know, there were moments I know that was hard for him. Yeah. Because I even more, him, I know. <laughs> even more than, like, at least my show, my character was not that defined. Some guy in a black suit. Whereas Tony Soprano was very defined. And I know there were times when he, like, you know, you, you don't realize about losing your privacy. Yeah. And walking down the street and, like, 900 people, you're like, hey, Tony, fucking gets you after a while. I mean, it's the thing that got you there. But after a while, you don't want it to be the thing that defines you entirely. It can be rough. Yeah, he didn't. He he also was really hated doing press, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean like you know, no. but there like you, there are certain actors who love to act and just don't. We never would, would be happy if they never had to do. Absolutely, we had, we. Do it, it was painful talking to him. I know because <laughs> you could tell he just. Well, Did it because he I'm had good, to. Well, I'm good with you because I've known you for, you know, 25, 30 years or whatever. But still to this day, I had to learn how to get better at doing publicity because it is kind of part of what I do. It took me a long time to realize it, though. I wish I'd known it more when I was younger. Well, but when you did Betsy's wedding, that was the first chance yeah, but that I you blew, right? I, well, you say blow. Well, I, I mean, like, you, you told me that it. you did a theater yeah, Project, so Princeton. you couldn't go and do publicity. I went to Princeton and did a play at Princeton. That seemed more important to me. But looking back on it, if I'd had any kind of, you know, if I had someone to kind of coach me through this stuff, I kind of had no idea how big that was blowing up. I had no idea that I had to be at this certain thing in Florida at a certain time to really make it go over the top. <laughs> it was just ignorance on my part. You did know, you learn I've done more all about kinds of stuff. I turned down a, like a, what was it, a, <laughs> a three-picture deal at Disney... Absolutely. I was so, you know, not educated. Why? I didn't want to be stuck at one place. I felt like my opportunities like lay wider than that. And I have to say that I remember to this day, Jeffrey Katzenberg, to always to his credit, 
when I said no, I was sitting in his office. When I, I've never told this story, actually. When I was sitting in his office, it wasn't that I was so, like, cocky or going, ho. Oh, I just felt like being stuck to a three-picture contract. And they'd show me a script of one of the movies they wanted me to do. I just didn't respond to it that well. And I thought, at some point, I can't say no all the time. I'm going to have to do three of them. And I was really, like, at that point in my life, I was really into trying to do the most interesting, best quality stuff. But I remember when I said, I don't think I could do that, Jeffrey Katzenberg looked me in the eye and he said, you know what, at Disney, we really think we know what's better for an actor than an actor does. You know what? And at that time, he was right. He was. But I didn't think so at the time. But these are not stories, these are not stories about like, oh my God, I wish I'd done it. Yeah. These are stories that like, make me laugh about me. Like how cocksure I was about certain things. And I was. I was like at a very clear direction of what I wanted. That just didn't fit into it. I didn't care if it was wrong or right. Yeah. You know, so therefore, at, like at this stage, like I don't really have any, I don't, people say, do other things you regret you didn't do or that you turned down or, and I have to say, honestly, no. There were things I said yes to that were right. You know, does it always pan out the way you think it will? None of it ever does. Now, those movies, when you talked about Movie Jail, they must have been, that must have been... Um, I didn't know, I, was, I didn't know until it was too late that I was in Movie Jail. But I like, remember being on the set with you for So I Married an Ex-Murderer. That, that was one of them, actually. Yeah, I that thought so. One. With Mike Myers and... Right, because box office-wise, they just didn't do enough. 29th Street was a Fox movie that just didn't perform at the box office. Uh, French Vampire in America, that was a big Warner Brothers film. That was the sequel to American Werewolf in London. That tanked. Then there was uh, even ones that are a cult movie now, like mm. uh, Empire Records. Mm. That tanked at the box office. It's a cult movie now. But there were like four where just back to back, you just don't survive that very well. I didn't know it, but I, did, I found out later. So it seems like at this point in your career you, you, you make choices for different reasons. Sometimes it's the genre, sometimes it's the director, sometimes it's the location. And Is sometimes that... it's money. Yeah. Well, yeah absolutely. <laughs> you uh, made a horror movie this year. And I did. In your entire career, that's the first time you've done that genre. Were you curious about... Very. We should say it's called Annabelle Creation. And, yeah. Uh, uh, I was very curious James about... Produced by James Wan. Yeah, and directed by David Sanborn, who... That was the reason I wanted to do it. He'd done a movie called Lights Out. I thought it was really good. And With he, another Aussie in that, Teresa Palmer. Exactly. And also hadn't done a big studio movie in a long time. What was that like? Fantastic. I missed it. <laughs> you know, you go to work, it's a reasonable hour. You work a few hours, really. And then you, uh, uh, you're done. So this is our new orphanage. It's as big as a castle. Feel free to use the house as you see fit. Mrs. Mullins and I stay down here. Your rooms are upstairs. Locked. And it stays that way.
Janice says she's seen your daughter. My daughter has been dead for a very long time. And you have a dressing room trailer, you I You have see. your own dressing room. You know, it's just <laughs> like it's a different... You're not changing someone's car in a back alley. <laughs> I've done that so many times doing independent films. I think you remember you telling me about one where you were in a... Was it you who were in a bunk bed and you looked up and Hugh Jackman's poster was on your... Yeah, I was doing like this independent film and my dressing room was in a kid's bedroom next door. And I remember laying on the bed. There's this huge poster of you on the ceiling from X-Men or whatever. And I just remember thinking, I bet you're not laying in some strange kid's bedroom who's knocking on the door asking for his skateboard. <laughs> but see, that stuff makes me laugh. Yeah. It's not like a, it's not like out of like jealousy or anything. It's just no. the irony of stuff. Yeah. That's what that's what I love. That's what makes me laugh. I'm at a point now where I'm quite quite. Uh, quite happy with where things are. Like I feel like I'm getting to do more interesting work every year. So I'm kind of eager to see like how that pans out, like what happens in the next five, six years. You know, I'm still like well committed to it. I don't have any intention of retiring, so I'd like to be doing it till I drop dead, so. <laughs> well, we'd like to, if I, there's no way I can say that without making it sound like I want you to drop dead, but <laughs> I was going to say, we'd like to see you keep doing it till you drop dead too. Yeah, no, but. no, and I, you know, and I really like, and the other part of this is like, since this is for Australia, the truth of it is, is that Australia, I mean, ironically, has offered me some of the best opportunities in film ever to do the kind of work I always wanted to do. I don't think I've ever done the kind of work I want to do here, but I have done it in Australia. Wow. Yeah. You mean with things like Lantana and yeah, Balibo? Yeah, and Balibo. Yeah. Those are two movies that I'm enormously proud of. But I don't yeah. think, and I think you're lucky to have two in your whole career that you feel that way about. But if it wasn't for Australia, I would never have had those opportunities. Well, I'm looking forward to what's next for you. And mm -hmm. I thank you so much for taking the time That's all right. to talk to us. Thank you. Yeah, it's my least favourite subject. <laughs> it's me. But, but I've known you for a long, long time. So I pulled myself out of like, you know, lengthy interview retirement. So, well, I'm, I'm glad you made yeah, an exception for me. Thank you. There are some people that you, it's worth kind of doing it for. You get tired of telling your own story. You know, you, you listen to yourself in the middle of it and you go, God, I'm so boring. <laughs> told that so many times. You know, not many actors say that. Yeah, no, <laughs> I have to tell you from my side of no, it. No, true. Usually their favourite thing to do is to talk and talk and talk. I get embarrassed by myself having to tell the same story over. It's like, <laughs> Well, you told a few new ones today. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Well, we're looking forward to seeing more work. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Anthony's an example of an actor who's completely done this his own way. He's very outspoken, never wanted to do it the way he was told, and it's really refreshing to hear an Aussie talk about actually also how important it is to integrate into the American culture and not stand out as an Aussie. I guess what really comes through with Anthony is that persistence is everything when it comes to making it in Hollywood. Whatever he does next, when you hear about it, you will know it was his choice and nobody else's. Next time on Aussies in Hollywood, Jenny chats to writer Luke Davies about joining Hollywood later in his career, his work on the film Lion and where to from here, along with his own personal battles. This uh, heroin addiction was just really kicking into gear and so basically you can't be that and anything else so once the drug addiction really happened then to be honest what I was was a drug addict not, not a writer 
And then the the struggle then was trying to <clears throat> trying to win that unwinnable battle. Aussies in Hollywood is recorded in LA for Podcast One. Recording is by Andrew Sink. Audio production by Alex Mitchell and Nick Slater. Produced by Tim Dunlop. Executive producer is Jamie Cho. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.